We are at the end of the Book of Numbers, and we have another double parsha to end the book. Matos and Masse, these two are almost always bunched together in a double parsha. There's a whole system outlining when you take two parshios and you double them up, and there's a whole hierarchy of when they get doubled. And this week, Matos and Masse are almost always doubled. Even when we have a leap year, so we have an extra month. And we need all sorts of extra partios to make up for all those extra weeks. Most leap years, Matos Masse is, is doubled. And for the sake of the Parsha podcast audience, I did some research. I did some research. The last time that we had one week Matos, one week Masse, so the two partios of this which were separated, the last time that happened was in 2014. And the next time when Matos Masse will be read separately, it's going to be in 2035, 12 years from now. I'll be, I'll be 48. Please God, the Parsha podcast will still be active, but it's a, Long way of saying that it's very unusual to have Matos and Masse separate. Now, I will tell you, I'm speaking to you from Ontario, which is a province in Canada, and we're here in the summer, and we have some special guests that joined us from New York. My parents came in. They drove in to come spend some time with their children, with their grandchildren, and I'm telling my father, I'm uh, oh, I gotta do this Parsha podcast. And what's, what am I gonna say? It's Matos Masse. It's hard to, it's hard to find things to say in the Parsha. And my father tells me, you know, one week, you should have a five minute Parsha podcast, just five minutes and just tell the audience, you know, you know what? This week, I don't have what to say. And that too will be instructive. Because it's very instructive to know we have nothing to say, keep your mouth shut. So that was a great suggestion. But he made the suggestion to me right before I started recording. If only he made this suggestion like two days ago. And then I could say, oh, you know what? This is the easiest week. But I did all the work. So we'll still go ahead with the Parsha podcast. Hopefully it's good. Let's begin. So again, we have two Parshios. It's like 240 verses and it talks about all sorts of interesting things. Uh, the first parsha starts off with the laws of vows. You make a vow, you make an oath. Those are obligatory. You must obey them, you must observe them. And there are all sorts of circumstances when they can be annulled. But the general upshot of this is, is that we take our words very seriously. When you say something, you have the ability to effectuate grand change in the world. If I say, I hereby make a vow that this thing is prohibited, now you have 614 mitzvahs, because now you have created a mitzvah prohibition against the thing that you made a vow against. That's how it starts off. We have the war against Midian. Last week, of course, there was the instruction to wage war against Midian. This week, we have the implementation of that, the conscription of the soldiers. There were 3,000 soldiers per tribe. So a total of 36,000 soldiers. Only 1,000 were combat troops. And the other 2,000 per tribe, 1,000 were for supplies, for provisions. 
and the other thousand were to pray. And the implementation went flawlessly. It was a complete victory with no casualties. And obviously this is indicative of a divine war. This is a miracle. You don't have a war against a fearsome enemy and suffer no casualties. That can only be a sign of the Almighty actually waging war on behalf of the nation. They get revenge from Bilaam. They kill the five kings of Midian. The war is not complete. Moshe chides the nation because they kept the women alive, even though they were the instigators of the events that precipitated this war. We have the laws of koshering vessels when they acquired all the booty from the people of Midian. Well, you have all these pots and pans and dishes and all that, all the light that may have all sorts of non-kosher residue on it. So what do you do to transform a vessel that was previously not kosher to make it kosher? The laws are told in our parasha. We have the division of the spoils from the war. We have the interesting episode that we spoke about last year about the two and a half tribes that wanted to settle on the East Bank. They had lots of flock and they wanted to Settle not on the other side of the Jordan, the west bank of the Jordan, but on the east bank of the Jordan, on the lands that they conquered on the east bank of the Jordan. And Moshe agreed with certain conditions. And Parshas Masse, which is the second half of our double header this week, it starts off with a list of encampments, the 42 different places where they stopped, they left Egypt, and they traveled, and they encamped at various different places along the way, 42 in total, and they are delineated in our parsha. We have the instruction to conquer the land, to vacate the indigenous population with the layout of the boundaries of biblical Israel. We have the cities of the Levites, the cities of refuge, and we have a callback to last week's parsha with the episode of the daughters of Tzlavchad. You recall this is the five daughters, the father died, and how does inheritance work when there are no sons? The inheritance goes to the daughters. But there is one requirement, namely that the daughters of Slavchad must marry intra-tribally. They must marry only to men from the tribe of Manasseh, so that way the portion, the ancestral portion of Manasseh is completely conveyed to the tribe of Manasseh on the settlement and conquest of the land. A lot to talk about, but today I want to focus on the beginning of Parshas Masis, that's the second Parsha that we're going to read. And I want to focus specifically on the delineation of the various places where the nation encamped over the preceding years. The nation's now on the plains of Moab, this is the last place they're facing Jericho. They're going to cross over the Jordan. Very soon, of course, it's going to happen. Not in the Torah, it's going to happen in the book of Joshua. But just chronologically, they're only, you know, a few months out of the crossing of the Jordan. They're on their final launching site for the river crossing. So the first 49 verses of chapter 33, now that they are in the final destination, the final encampment before the crossing of the Jordan, it details, it delineates the 42 different places where they had previously encamped. And it starts off in Egypt. They were in Ramses and they, Ramses, and they 
they went to, to Sukkos, and from Sukkos they went to Asam, and Asam they went to Piachirus, and so on, place after place where they departed from, where they traveled from, and where they settled, where they encamped. And it's, you know, almost 50 verses. And we, of course, know that the Torah uses words very sparingly. And it seems excessively verbose. It seems like it's unnecessarily wordy. And in general, we have to ask the question. It's not adding any narrative to the story. It doesn't enrich our understanding of what they did in the wilderness. Why is it so important? What's the imperative to enumerate all the pit stops that the nation had from Egypt until the plains of Moab? Why is it necessary? We know that they encamped in various places. Okay, that, that should be sufficient. So, of course, Rashi asks this question. The first Rashi in Parshas Masai. Why were these encampments all written? And he gives us an answer. To tell us the kindness of God. The Jewish people were condemned to wander in the wilderness. They're going to go from place to place in the wilderness. That is the decree. And you may think, you know, they've been there for 40 years. You may think that we're wandering all the time. Can you imagine? What would it be like to be encamped and decamped and travel every day or every week? Thousands of different times over the course of 40 years. You could have potentially imagined that. Always on the move, never settled, no peace of mind to tell us the Almighty's kindness. He didn't do that. It's only 42 stops in 40 years. You know, it's kind of like a military family. You know, you, you, you're you sent to one place, to a different base. Okay, but at least you have a year on average in every place. It's not so terrible. It's not ideal, but it's not so terrible. And then Rashi does some extra calculation to reiterate or to enhance this point. He notes that if you look at the first 14 encampments, all of them happened before Moshe sent the spies in, of course, our book, Parshas Shlach, the spies to go scout out the land. That was all in year one of the 40 years. Because with the episode of the spies, they were condemned to spend 40 years in the wilderness. So that all happened year one. And there were 14 encampments that preceded it. So year one was 14 different places. It was quite a busy year. And eight of them come after the death of Aaron, thus on year 40. So the middle 38 years, the bulk of the time in the wilderness, they only had 20 stops. And once every other year, it's not so bad. So Rashi is addressing the very detailed itinerary of the nation. And in his first idea, he tells us that this shows us God's kindness. It was only 42 stops. And of that, really, the first year was very busy. 11, I'm sorry, 14 in the first year, 8 in the last. Only 20 stops in 40, in 38 years. Of course, we know this journey was very cumbersome. 
very regimented. You had to decamp, you had to disassemble the Mishkan. It was all precise. The cloud had to lift and it would cover up the encampment of Judah. And then there was the blowing of the trumpets and Moshe was announcing uh, the verses and the clouds would get to travel. And then first the, the first cohort and then the very staggered disassembly of the Mishkan and, and covering it and, and then the second cohort and the third cohort and blowing the shofar. Very, very detailed. And it's all initiated by God, and there's, there's no forewarning. Do you remember back in Parshas Bahaloscha, the verse tells us that they were totally at the mercy of God. Whenever the cloud lifted, it's time to move. And that could be a day, it could be a 24-hour period, it could be even a 12-hour period after they arrived in a certain place. Sometimes you want to settle down, and you never know, you're always in flux, you're always in limbo. Sometimes you're only there for 12 hours. Sometimes you're there for a day and a night. Sometimes you're there for two days, a month, a year. The verse emphasizes the fact that there was perpetual uncertainty. And if they had to undergo this all the time, that would really be nightmarish. And it shows us that the Almighty was easy on the nation. Of course, we spoke about this in the past. These Journeys, this whole system of journeys, it was all part of the test of the Jewish nation in the wilderness. Sometimes they would be forced to stay in a very inhospitable place and they would want to leave as soon as possible. And they would just follow whatever the Almighty says. And sometimes they were condemned to stay in a bad place for a very long time, so it's doubly painful. And sometimes they'd be in a very pleasant place, a nice oasis, and they were there not because it was pleasant, but because that's where the Almighty wanted them to be. And then they would have to leave, and they would leave an enjoyable place, and they, they, it was difficult on many dimensions. You know, how long are you going to be? The duration is very unpredictable. The destination, you don't know where you're going, how long of a journey is it going to be? And the quality of the encampment, this can be very varied. Some are good, some are pleasant, some are very miserable. And now we're done. And the Torah recounts all the instances when this happened. And we're being told they weren't so abused by endless journeying. They weren't so itinerant. 42 different encampments in 40 years. And in the middle, 38, only 20 times. That's the first interpretation of Rashi. And then he offers a second interpretation. And he doesn't explain. He just gives us an analogy. There was a king, and his son was ill, was sick. And they had to travel to a very distant place to achieve a healing. And now, once they finished, they counted all the places that they went. And they noted, here we slept, and here we were cold, and here you had a headache. That's Rashi's second interpretation. This is telling us that at the end of a long saga, a long epic odyssey, you recount all the things, all the trials and tribulations that you underwent along the journey. And Rashi, of course, is precise in his analogy. You have a father, a king, that's God, taking his son that's us, on a journey to get healed. 
We're trying to achieve something positive. We have something that we're lacking, something that we need to achieve. And in each place, something noteworthy happened. And then when they're done, they reminisce on what happened. The Jewish people, we underwent 42 encampments from Egypt until we're ready to enter the land. This journey of of 42 pit stops, it was a journey of remediation. The nation needed to be healed. They had some sort of malady. And that was the purpose of the journey, to heal this malady. And all the stops were intentional. Something important, something of note happened in each station. And now that they're healed, now that they're ready to enter the land, they're spiritually prepared for the next phase in their existence. Now they're reminiscing about all the travails of this epic saga. Now we'll get back to this idea in Rashi in a little bit, but I want to also talk about some of the other ideas that are featured here in the sages. The Ramban, this is interesting, the Ramban quotes the Rambam. So Nachmanides quotes Maimonides, which is unusual, doesn't always quote him. And oftentimes when he quotes him, he disagrees with him. Here he quotes it and he likes the idea. Very powerful insight. The Jewish people spent 40 years in the wilderness and they experienced daily nature-defined miracles. Miracles, signs, and wonders. And of course, all those people who were there, if you ate manna morning, afternoon, and night, and you drank water from a rock, and you had those clouds that enveloped you, those miracles were plainly evident to all those who witnessed it. But in the future, says Rambam, quoted by Ramban, people may cast doubts on them. And of course, miracles are very helpful because they show us that God's in charge. They reinforce our faith. And one of the greatest miracles in the Torah is the survival of the nation in the wilderness for 40 years. You go out for a little picnic. You go hike up a mountain for a day and you don't bring enough water, you're toast. Imagine you have a nation of millions of people and they're going in the wilderness. There's nothing around. And they survived. How they survive? They had manna every day and they drank water from a rock. That's a great miracle. But the cynic may say, the scoffer may say, well, they were in the wilderness, but, you know, they, they, they were like on the outskirts of all these cities. They were like, you know, nomadic tribes never get too far away from civilization, never get too far away from greenery, from agriculture, never get too far away from a good source of water. People may say that. And that would, of course, minimize the grandiosity of these miracles. And therefore, the Torah tells us, look at these places. I'm going to list every single place. You could follow where it is on the map and go see how hospitable it is. Go see how close to civilization it is. Go see how well-designed it is for human flourishing. They were not near civilization. They were not 
on arable land. The Rambam even adds they weren't on land that even grew trees or shrubs that you could even eat. They weren't near cisterns of water. The Torah, by laying out these places and letting us trace their root in the wilderness, the Torah is helping us banish such notions. And therefore the Torah details the precise locations where the nation encamped to help us truly recognize the magnitude of this miracle. Again, a nation of millions. We know that there were 600,000 adult men, not including the tribe of Levi, by the way, between the ages of 20 and 60. If you assume there's a comparable amount of females, we have the Levites, and we have the young people, we have the old people, we're definitely dealing with millions. And they survived in total screeching wilderness for 40 years. How did that happen? Well, we know. But uh, just to make sure that no one makes a mistake, oh, they were near a civilization, they had lots of agriculture, etc. To accentuate the miracle of the nation of millions surviving, the Torah lays out their itinerary. So some very interesting ideas that we have in Rashi, Ramban, quoting from the Rambam. And that's trying to answer the obvious question. We have a detailed accounting of all the locations where the nation encamped, and it's not for no reason. It's not for a scrapbook. It's to show us God's kindness. He went easy on us, relatively. It's to accentuate the impact of the miracle. And it's like a father recounting the events of the journey to get healed. Now, the Kabbalists, they tell us something very deep. They tell us that there was a very specific objective that the nation had to do in the wilderness. You think about it. You know, they, they're going from all these different places, and the Torah lists all these places. And the question is, why? Why, in fact, did they need to go to all these places? Why, in fact, did they spend, in some places, a relatively short amount of time, in other places, a relatively longer amount of time? And the Kabbalists give a fascinating answer that's very useful for us to understand Jewish history with. The Jewish people are the nation of God. We're here as representatives of God. Once we signed the Pact of Sinai, we, we, we forged a covenant. Really, it starts with Abraham. Abraham forged a covenant, and we did the same at the Exodus, at Sinai. We made a deal, and the deal is that we are his people, and we're going to bring his name in the world, and we're going to banish all those forces, all those elements that are trying to detract, so to speak, from God's existence, and glory in the world. And this journey, what they do, again, they, 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 no one had a job. There were no accountants, lawyers, physicians, influencers in the wilderness. What did they do? There were no farmers. Everyone ate the manna. That's an interesting question. What well, We know they studied Torah. But in every single location, there was a specific sort of spiritual work that was needed to help, 
so to speak, cleanse, the Kabbalists tell us, cleanse that particular place from noxious spiritual forces. And that's what they were doing. And that's why the cloud was taking them in a very specific journey. The cloud was taking them because once they finished their job in one place, and sometimes it was a big job, they would have to stay there for a long time. Sometimes it was a shorter job and they would finish it overnight. But once they finished their job, it's time to move on to the next locale, to the next challenge. And there were 42 different stations because that is what the Almighty wanted to blaze a path, so to speak, of cleansing that region, that area of the noxious spiritual forces. And this shows, the Kabbalists note, how difficult it was for the nation in the wilderness. Because they would go to places where the forces of the Yetzirah, the forces of the Satan, all these forces that are trying to eliminate, trying to obscure, trying to obfuscate the presence of God in the world, they were there with great intensity. And thus, on a spiritual level, the nation had to endure tremendous difficulties and challenges in each one of these venues, in each one of these encampments. And they wanted to leave, but they stayed. Why? They followed the cloud. They followed the Almighty. So this gives us an entirely new perspective on what was happening for 40 years in the wilderness. It's not just Jews wandering aimlessly, playing Sudoku, playing Sheshbesh, flicking marbles. They were on a mission now as soldiers of the Almighty to fix all the spiritual blemishes present in every location. And they were in a constant state of conflict, of struggle, of battle. The spiritual atmosphere was one of a great swirling battle. And the nation would struggle to maintain their status. And once they finished, and you would want to stay there, okay, now it's spiritually cleansed. This is a great place to live. We've eliminated all of our spiritual foes. Okay, now it's time to move. The cloud says, okay, your job here is done. Move on to the next place. And every place had a certain amount of work that needed to be done. And of course, we cannot fathom what what does it even mean. This is a, a generation of people that experience prophecy. They're on a different level. We can't even fathom what it would even take to cleanse a place of noxious influences, spiritual noxious, noxious influences. But once they were done, they were done. And now it's a great place. They've gentrified spiritually, so to speak, the forces that served as obstacles in their spiritual life. But the clouds never relented. And the clouds directed them to the next challenge, to the next Mission to the next encampment. So for 40 years, it's like it's nonstop contending with these forces. Now there's a flip side to this. Some of the Kabbalists present this idea as cleansing certain forces. Some present it in the positive sense that there's sparks of holiness that were found in this spiritual desert and they were picking them up. And some places have a lot of sparks. You've got to work a long time to extract all those sparks. 
And both of those, these are, these are two sides of the, of, of one whole. The place that has a lot of spiritual flaws that need to be remediated also has lots of sparks. It's always balanced. And the Kabbalists also tell us that the reason why we are prohibited to return to Egypt is because we cleansed it. We extracted all the sparks. We rendered it empty spiritually. We fixed what we need to fix. We redeemed the sparks that are there, and now it's empty. Our national work there is done. We are prohibited to go back. Now, this idea that these locations represent a certain journey, a certain mission of the nation, it's actually relevant to us as well. Rabbeinu Bachai, one of the great commentators, he tells us that this is a portent, this is a harbinger. This can be used to look to the future. The future redemption will mirror the initial redemption. The Jewish people left Egypt. What does it mean to leave Egypt? It means to leave Egypt and to go through 42 steps before we're really ready to go home. When we want to go home permanently, we want to have the permanent redemption. We want Messiah. We're going to have to follow this same pattern and this idea is echoed by many other commentators. The Jewish people, when they left Egypt, had 42 different stops. They were on a multi-stop journey to get to the land. Our nation will have to undergo a similar sort of journey. We're going to be on a 42-stop journey before we get back home. The story of the Jewish people the last 2,000 years is one of exile and expulsion. We go to a place, we settle down, and we seem to begin to thrive and to flourish in a certain place. We encamp. And then we leave. And we're forced out. The commentators tell us that too is emblematic symbolic, is reminiscent of the clouds. The clouds give us direction to go to a certain place, and we end up in Poland, we end up in Lithuania, we end up in France and Germany and white Russia, Ukraine, North Africa, South Africa, all over the Middle East, of course, Asia Minor, everywhere, a thousand years in Europe. And we encamp, and we settle, and we get to work. What do Jews do? They build Institutions, schools, Torah institutions, they publish Torah books, they flourish. Of course, materially, physically, but also spiritually. And that is part of our mission. We, we signed up for this. Not just to cleanse the wilderness, but to cleanse the whole world. And to pick up the sparks in the whole world. And when we're done, the clouds lift. And we have to move. Our national work in that place is done. In some places, need a lot more work than others. And of course, this is what it actually means is beyond us. You know, the Jews, Jews were in certain places for, for centuries, for millennia. 
And then you see places like are completely devoid of Jews. They always have this story about the one Jew in Baghdad. There's this one Jew left in Afghanistan. You know, the Jews were in Yemen for thousands of years. And now there's not a single Jew there. It's an unbelievable thing. What happened? There was a mission. A contingency of Jews went there. Again, they were guided by the cloud. You don't, we cannot conceive of what we need to do next. This is all done by God. And they're there and they flourish, they settle and they accomplish and they extract the sparks and they cleanse and they uplift and fix. And then they leave. The mission of the nation, whatever it is precisely, cleansing the maladies, lifting, redeeming the sparks, it's done and the nation moves elsewhere. And we have a tradition, and I always like to say this, I've said this a few times in the podcast. The Jewish people will be in 42 different countries in exile over the course of our history, from the end of the Second Temple era until Messiah. And we have a tradition going back hundreds of years to the great Rabbi Chaim Volozhener. He said the last place the Jewish people will encamp before Messiah is in the USA, America. America. Rabbi Chaim Volozhner passed away, by the way, in 1821. So 202 years ago from the time of this podcast recording. And he said, once the Jewish people lift up all the sparks in America, once they fix what needs to get fixed over here, then that's the last, the last stand before we can cross over the Jordan, we can enter the land, and we can settle there permanently. When there's Torah permeating this country. Now, I'm actually speaking to you from Canada, so I guess, I don't know, it is... Canada is like a protectorate. It's a vassal state. We could call it. It's, a, it's, it's part of North America. But once this place is pulsating with Torah, once this place is extracted, so to speak, we, we cleanse it from its flaws and we, so to speak, on a spiritual level, we pull out its sparks. That's the end of the road. And then that's it. All you got to do is cross over the Jordan. The Jordan's going to split and we're in. Now, I will tell you, that statement was made hundreds of years ago, but in the 1980s or 90s, the great Rav Shach, who was the greatest sage in the land of Israel, when he recounted this, he says, no, no, when Rav Haim said that Torah flourishes in America, that's a sign of Messiah, he didn't mean New York or New Jersey, where all the Jews live. He meant Texas. Texas. The land of David Crockett and Sam Houston. When Torah flourishes in Texas, that's when we get close to the end. So of course, we have a particular affinity for that statement, given that uh, Torch, of course, is headquartered in Houston, Texas. So maybe, just maybe, we will have a little bit of a role in helping finish that last, the last little bit of elevating the sparks of fixing the spiritual maladies of cleansing and finishing the job. An amazing idea. We read about these encampments, and it's not just about what happened in the past. This is the blueprint for us now, and we may be at the very end of the finish line. We may be at the vanguard 
pioneers in encampment number 42. I want to share one more idea about these 42 encampments. This comes courtesy of the Svas MS. And as you know, one of our favorite commentators here on the Parsha podcast. It's a very short piece, characteristically so, but every sentence is, uh, is really a whole paragraph for other writers. And he takes this in a bit of a different direction. We know that immediately prior to the Exodus, the nation was at their lowest nadir. In Kabbalistic lingo, they were on the 49th gate of impurity, and they were on the precipice of the point of no return. If they went over to level 50, they would be irredeemable, they would be irreparable, they would be gone forever. And we know, of course, the nation was supposed to be in Egypt for 400 years. And they left after 210. Why they leave early? So one of the ideas is because they had to leave early. If they stayed any longer, they may have lapsed into level number 50, and that's the point of no return. So what happened? How did they get out of this morass? How did they get out of this quagmire? The answer is Passover. Pesach. What does Passover mean? Why is Pesach called Passover? So Rashi tells us that Passover refers to the money jumping over the houses of the Jewish people in Egypt and only striking the firstborn of the Egyptians. But Rashi adds, the word Passover also refers to the spiritual transformation of this night, of the night of the Exodus. Typically, if you want to go from level 49 impurity, so level negative 49, you want to go in the right direction, you have to go first to level 48, and then 47, then 46, and then eventually reaching zero, par, parity, and then go positive level one, positive level two, etc. Typically, when we grow, we, we grow slowly, methodically, steadily, one step at a time. You skip a step, then of course you expose yourself to danger. But not on Passover. On Passover, you can skip. You can pass over. You can jump over some steps and not be exposed to any risk. And on this night, the Kabbalists tell us, the nation, they started off on the 49th level of impurity and they passed over all the steps. They jumped over everything and got to level 49 of the positive side, level 49 of purity, which is the absolute apex of the human experience, even Moshe didn't reach level 50. Even Adam, before his sin, didn't reach level 50. That's what happened on the original Passover, on the first day of the Exodus. And what do we do on the second day of Passover? We start to count the Omer. And we count 49 days. And the reason why the Kabbalists explain is that the Jewish people did the 49-step journey twice. For the ensuing 49 days, every day they rehashed, not by jumping, not Passover, but they rehashed in a slower, more methodical fashion, 
what they accomplished on Exodus night. So on Exodus night, it was, it was 49 transformations. Each transformation, of course, is a double transformation. One, getting rid of a negative and embracing a positive. That's the Passover. And then for 49 days, each day was another stage of transformation until Shavuos. And then you have the Sinai revelation. So this, this peak level of, of level 49 of purity, of holiness, it was achieved twice. Once on the Exodus night, Passover, and once 50 days later. So 49 days from the following day. And that's the Sinai revelation. Now, what does this have to do with the journey of the nation? What does it have to do with the 42 encampments? Says the Sfasemus, no, you counted incorrectly. It's actually 49 different encampments. And the Jewish people did this 49-step program. They didn't do it once. They didn't do it twice. They actually did it three times. Once on Passover, in an instant, overnight. That's the Exodus. And once, 49 days later. And once, in the 49 encampments that the nation stopped at. Each encampment, it was an emphasis. It was, it, it was intentional to try to achieve one level of change. And once they finished it, they moved into the next. Stage. Of course, the question is, wait a minute, is he trying to pull a fast one? There were only 42 stops. Of course, there's a lot of verses. But if you count them, there are 42 stops, not 49. So he tells us, you forgot something. Of course, to us, it's, you know, we don't have such a command of the Torah. But if you read every single word of the Torah and you didn't skip any of the Rashis, you know the answer. Rashi, this is earlier in Numbers 21.4, Rashi cites a Midrash, and it's based upon a problematic verse. The verse says that Aaron died, and it gives us the encampment, was Bnei Yakon and Moserah, which are two of the encampments. This is in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 6. The problem is, is that we have two verses that seem to conflict as to where Aaron died. In a bunch of places, we're told that Aaron died in Mount Hor, which you'll learn, of course, you'll read. It's one of the places they encamped. But then the verse says elsewhere that Aaron died in a different location, Bnei Yachron and Moserah, which are earlier encampments. So where did Aaron die? And why does the verse seem to contradict itself? So Rashi again in Numbers 21.4 cites the Midrash. That after Aaron died, they retraced their steps. They reversed the course. They went back seven stations, seven encampments. And if you count, Rashi tells us, go from Mount Hor, go back seven encampments, you'll see that they're in a place called Moserah. And in Moserah, that's where they had the eulogy of Aaron. And therefore, when the Torah says that after Aaron died, they left from Moserah to Pneyakon, that's because they, in fact, went back. They retraced their steps. They went seven stations in reverse, and there they had the eulogy. 
Of course, it's a great mystery. Why did they have the eulogy there? Why did they retrace their steps? Why did they reverse course seven stations to hold the eulogy for Aaron? What's the significance? It's not immediately clear. Rashi, of course, doesn't address that, but we know that they only traveled to the places that the clouds led them. So the clouds led them seven stations in reverse. Why? We don't know. It's a side question. Maybe there was some reason why, well, the answer I would say is that, well, when Aaron died, their spiritual level dropped, and therefore they had to go back. But that's not something anyone else says. But for some reason, the nation was not supposed to be in Mount Hor at that time, that they go back and then retrace their steps. But regardless, it means that there were seven of the encampments that were done twice. So we had 42 individual encampments, plus seven that was done twice, you have 49 encampments. And in each one of these encampments, the nation spiritually retraced what they achieved on Exodus night, on Passover night, and over the course of the days between Pesach and Shavuos, they did this 49-step process. Not once, not twice, but three times. Fascinating insight. Jewish people are always working. We don't just sit around and drink coffee. Well, you have to drink coffee to get work. You need the caffeine boost. But we don't just sit around and loiter about and relax and make a life out of that. We're always trying to do something. And we're told part of the transformation from absolute bottom to absolute top is 49 steps. And the Jewish people did it on many different dimensions. They did it all at once. And that's a very general transformation in one day, maybe even in one moment. And then they did it, they broke it down into 49 different parts and did one per day. And finally, they did it with the complete rigor, the complete comprehensive rigor. They moved to a place only after they accomplished and finished and cemented within themselves what they needed in the previous place, and they got to work on the next stage. Continues the Svasemus, beautiful piece. This model, it's not limited to the Jews of yore. All of us are on a journey. We are all heroes of our own epic. We're all on the move. A Jew is called someone who is moving. Like we always say, we're an itinerant nation. What does it mean? Not just to move locations, always growing, always ascending. The trajectory has to always be upward. And how do you do that? What do you do about that? There's 49 steps, of course. That's the totality of it. And your growth can happen on different dimensions. And when it happens at once, you don't just say, okay, I'm done with that. You deepen it. You go a step deeper and do it on a deeper level, a deeper dimension. And when you've done that, even on a deeper dimension. Continues Svas Emes. Why is this all mentioned now? Why are we delineated? If the purpose of these 42, really 49 different stations, it's all to, to, to do again the 49 steps of transformation, why is it mentioned now? Because once you're done, You're at the peak. 
You're at the apex. You're at the apotheosis. You're at the zenith of human achievement. You're on level 49 of the positive. You never forget where you came from. You have to always recount. You have to always relive everything that happened since the beginning of the journey. Relive those steps. This does remind us a little bit like the second interpretation of Rashi, that the father taking the son on the journey, the journey of convalescence. Remember what happened here? Remember what happened here? We're counting all those steps. Don't forget where you came from. Jacob, of course, he did that as well. He spent 20 years with Laban. And then once he departed from Laban to deal with Asaph, and he prayed, what did he say? When I crossed this Jordan, all I had was this staff. And now look what I have. He didn't forget where he came from. He didn't forget where he started at. And through that concludes the Svasemis, you will arrive at humility. If you are really on level 49, you have a very, very good reason to be very proud of your accomplishment. And you realize that you are on a different class than all other humans. You tower above other people Spiritually, you're a choice human. You're like an angel. And that's great. But if it leads to arrogance, if it leads to supremacy, you may lose more than you gain. It must always be marbleized with humility. Moshe is the greatest that ever lived, and he's the humblest. And that's the way it has to be. An amazing piece. So, of course, a short piece, but it's jam-packed with all sorts of interesting and valuable lessons. And I think this to be very instructive for us in our lives as well. We're on a journey. And there are going to be encampments on our individual journey. Of course, we had the idea that it's, there's a national journey as well, but us as individuals. The Jewish people showed us what these junctures, what these journeys of life are all about. Not there for no reason. You're there to do something, to accomplish something, to fit something, to extract some holy sparks. 49 steps of transformation. And that has to happen in different dimensions. It has to happen like a general triumph. It has to be redone day by day. And has to be done in a more comprehensive and rigorous fashion, in a very specific fashion. And there's another idea. He doesn't emphasize this point. But of the 49 steps of transformation, some of them were done twice. So I would think it's still 42, right? You know, you fail this level, or you were at this level, but you lose it. Maybe when you subsequently regain it, it's not on a level. You've been there before. Of course, we could all feel disenchanted if we're ever at the same point that we've been before. I already beat this level. I already accomplished this. And somehow I'm back to square one. Here we see they did seven of the encampments twice. For whatever reason, they had to drop back seven and do them again. And you would think they're just doing it again, but no. That actually counts as a brand new stage. Sometimes when you you take two steps back and one step forward, that new step that you've acquired, it is something new. It may feel like it's the same thing for you, but it's it's new. You're like, I already did this. I'm, I'm doing it again. 
doesn't work like that. If you did it once, 49 all at once, you did it 49 in 49 days, you're doing it again, but it's it's deepening, it's reinforcing, it's further embedding this change within you. And even if, even if you're doing the exact same step again, I'm going through those seven encampments that I already did. There's something new there. And you you had to do it twice. And therefore, it's two separate stages. You had to do it once with Aaron, and you had to do it once alone. And that in itself is another achievement. And finally, remember where you came from. The Torah is chock full of insights on how to become an angel. That's really what it's all about. It's about how to become an angel. Whenever you achieve greatness, always recall the beginning of the journey. Always remember those humble origins. It's like those restaurants. They hang up the first dollar. Always remember, remember, remember. Because if not, you are in grave danger. Okay, a beautiful parsha. What a way to end off the book of Numbers. And we like to end off the podcast with a question. And this is a fun question. Two tribes come to Moshe and say, we have lots of flock. And we want a place to settle that has lots of grazing land. Let us permanently dwell on the Transjordan lands. So, of course, Moshe goes into the whole protracted negotiations, etc. But a very basic question. It's implied from this story that the tribes of Ruvain and Gud, they had more sheep than everyone else. And the question is, why? Why did Ruvain and Gud, those two tribes, specifically Reuben and Gad, why did they have so much more sheep, so much more flocks than the rest of the tribes? That is a fun question. I saw a bunch of answers. I'll share with you two answers. Maybe you could come up with some answers of your own. We know that Reuven, Reuben, in the beginning of the saga of the Jewish nation, was just a family. He went out to the fields and he found these dudaim, these jasmine plants that were beneficial, at least that was the belief. They were beneficial for fertility. Reuben was always gathering the dudaim. He always had these special plants. And he gave them to his sheep. And the sheep proliferated. Oh, and who was Ruvain's neighbor? It was Ruvain, Shimon, and Gad. Those were the three tribes that were together. So Ruvain shared it with Gad. And he also gave it to his sheep. And the sheep proliferated as well. But Shimon, eh, they, they were worried about Shimon. Shimon's a problematic tribe because of the events that happened. Parshas Balak with Zimri, the head of the tribe of Shimon, and the 24,000 people that died were primarily from the tribe of Shimon. He didn't want to share with them. And then he said to Gad, you know what? Let's get away from Shimon a little bit and let's go to the other side of the Jordan. We don't want to be too close. We don't want to be influenced by Shimon. That's one idea. Another idea that I saw very clever 
The Jewish people in the wilderness, they had the most efficient and convenient food. Manna, parachutes from heaven to your door. You get to eat it and enjoy. Perfectly healthy, wonderful. But of course, the nation also had lots of other animals. And therefore, if someone wants to opt for a steak dinner or some lamb chops, they would be able to do it. So you would imagine some people say, you know what, today I'm not in the mood of manna. Maybe I'll have a little steak, a steak dinner, and they take off uh, from, from, from their flock, they take maybe a sheep or they take a bull and they slaughter it perfectly in line with halacha and they enjoy it. But we're told about the manna all the way back in Exodus chapter 16. Vehu kizera gad. And it is like a zera gad. I don't even remember what that means. But it says the word gad, gad. Commentaries tell us the reason why it's called zera gad is because the tribe of gad insisted we're only eating manna. And therefore, the one tribe that we're gonna, if we're gonna assign a name to the manna and we're gonna use the names of one of the tribes, it's gonna be Gad. And therefore, their sheep were never touched. And if their sheep were never touched, well, then it, it grew. It grew exponentially. Everyone else, they occasionally would diminish their flocks by eating some of it. Gad never touched it. And therefore, they had more flock. Simple, simple rule of economics. The more you spend, the less you have. Easy. Well, what about Ruvain? Well, Ruvain, he's the firstborn. And what does the firstborn get? He gets double. So Ruvain had a head start, a financial head start on everyone else. And we know that Jacob, when he's meeting Esau, he tells him, I have lots of sheep. So he started off with lots of sheep, double what everyone else started off with. And that is how he ended up with more flock. Interesting ideas. Of course, it's uh, more of a side note to the whole subject. The whole subject is really about the commitment to the land and the commitment to brotherhood. Will you go out to war against them? What are the terms of the agreement? Why do they want to not be in Israel proper? But interesting little side side part of this whole dynamic, why they had so many more flock to warrant them wanting to live on the outside of the Jordan. An interesting idea. I thank you for your attention. I hope you enjoyed this. This was delightful, I guess. Now that I'm looking at uh, my recorder, I guess it's, I guess I had more than five minutes worth of material to talk about. Of course, you know, I work for an organization called Torch, T-O-R-C-H, Torch, torchweb.org. You can find the links to that organization's website, torchweb.org, in the podcast description. If you want to learn more about what we do, see some of our classes, see some cool pictures of the Torch Center, which, of course, I miss because now I'm in Canada, in north of Toronto, in the province of Ontario, really, really far away from Houston. But uh, check out uh, the wonderful work of Torch. And of course, send me an email, rabbiwolbejima.com. I hope you enjoyed. Hope you have a fantastic day and a splendid, terrific 
sensational rest of your week. And of course, an uplifting, meaningful, inspirational, faithful Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with help the money, we will start the book of Deuteronomy of Devarim next week. With the help of the money, of course, the email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.